This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Parisian author Agnès Poirier. Agnès joined me via Skype in Paris to talk about her new book, Left Bank, Art, Passion and the Rebirth of Paris, 1940-1950. Left Bank explores the intellectual, literary and cultural flourishing during Nazi-occupied Paris and after liberation. We discuss the many connections and relationships, sexual and otherwise, that were essential to such an intense and productive period. We discuss Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, Robert Wright, Janet Flanner, Arthur Kassler, Jacques Jajar, Jean Paulin and many more. This is Amy Mullins with you and I'm delighted now to have with me on Skype from Paris... Agnès Poirier, who is the author of a book called Left Bank, Art, Passion and the Rebirth of Paris, 1940-50. Hi there, Agnès. Hello, good morning. Hi, it's great to um, to have you on the show. Now, you are a journalist and you write a columns for many newspapers such as the New York Times and The Guardian, The Observer, and also some French publications. So you're really engaged in uh, politics and culture over in Europe, particularly in uh, Britain and France, I believe. Yes, I divide my time between London and Paris and I uh, studied in both cities and uh, I um, arrived in the UK in my early 20s, finished a PhD there, which I didn't complete in the end, because I I, uh, started straight away to uh, write for French daily newspapers on um, what was going on culturally and and politically in London. It was at the time a very vibrant and very open and very interesting city. It's still pretty uh, interesting, but for other reasons, I'm now covering Brexit. It's a great background uh, to your perspective that you're bringing to this book and the approach that you've taken. Um, As you said, you didn't complete your PhD, but you studied history at the London School of Economics. And uh, obviously, this book brings a historical rigour to the left bank in Paris in a particular decade that is extremely tumultuous, capturing World War II and uh, the immediate aftermath of World War II. What was it that first prompted you to think there was a story behind the left bank and how did your story evolve? Well, first of all, I had already written four books about um, France and Britain and how they do things differently. They were uh, light, short essays, the kind of essays a, a journalist can write after uh, 10 years having been a, an acute observer of the different ways, you know, two countries uh, bicker and, and love each other. And I just wanted to do something completely different. I had the feeling that I had exhausted, in a, in a way, uh, the subject of a Franco-English uh, love-hate relationship. And as you you, you say, I studied history uh, at the LEC in London, but before that uh, at the Sorbonne in Paris, as well as political sciences in, in Paris. And um, I wanted to do something much more ambitious, a sort of cultural history that would read like a thriller, but would be very rigorous um, in terms of history. And so I, you know, I'm a born in Paris. I love its history and what Paris does to uh, to people who uh, visit it. And um, the um, the 1940s seem to be a, a very good decade in the sense that it it starts terribly badly. And uh, a lot of things happen in Paris that are still difficult to grasp from if you're British or American, because the experience of having lived in occupied Paris um, was very, very special. It was a very ambiguous time, if you like, and we refer to those years as the darkest hours of uh, French contemporary history. And But then, of course, there is the elation of the liberation of Paris, which is still quite difficult to put into words 70 years later when people recall it because uh, luckily there are quite a lot of people who uh, who live through those wonderful moments who are still with us 
and and of course the archives um and then so the the immediate uh, aftermath is this elation after such terrible years and also a lot of projects a lot of uh, um a lot of hope and it is not yet uh, the cold war it hasn't settled yet and so there are those wonderful and very exciting years where a lot of intellectuals, a lot of artists, a lot of writers gather uh, in Paris and try. In the end, they will fail, obviously, to prevent the Cold War from settling and happening. But uh, they tried so many different things and um, the the great political parties, I mean, will be able to talk about all those mad schemes. And and strangely, it all takes place in, in Paris. It is really surprising having read the book. It is such a a drama and it just is, it is gripping, as you say. I think it is kind of like a thriller. A lot of people who aren't familiar with French history may not know some of the twists and turns. They might know the ultimate outcome, but not how we arrived at that outcome. So I find that whole journey that you follow in this book really fascinating. And uh, you're following some very important historical figures, some who would be well known to many who may have studied them at university or just found an interest in them, such as Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, and obviously they're engaged in fiction, but also um, philosophy, non-fiction. And I'd really like to talk a little bit about them first, because they're kind of there throughout the book and then bring in the other characters many in Australia may not be familiar with Beauvoir and Sartre as well as the French. So in your research and in your view, when you're researching these two really important figures, what were some of the unique arrangements or or controversial at the time practices they were engaging in that were there to enable their artistic and creative output and intellectual flourishing? Well, to start with, you know, there were philosophy teachers uh, before the war and aspiring writer, uh, as far as Beauvoir was concerned. And um, Jean-Paul Sartre had uh, published the first book just before the war. But really, they were uh, teaching philosophy at uh, Lycée in Paris, and they were already shattering social conventions. They did things that weren't done at the time. That is to say, they would take their their students who were in their late teens, uh, to cafes, for instance. They would break the hierarchy, if you'd like, between a student and their professor and their teacher. And uh, they were also pretty young, so it meant that uh, they, they just didn't want this barrier between them and, and, and the young people, the young minds that they were um, enlightening. And uh, so they would go to cafes, uh, they would discuss ideas, Uh, Sartre, for instance, had a whole collection of American literature and would just lend all his books to his students, uh, Steinbeck and uh, Hemingway uh, and Fitzgerald, of course. Um, So he created a conversation between generations that just wasn't happening at the time. And then the war uh, broke out and it completely changed them. Because before that, as I said, they were philosophy teachers and they belonged in a life and a realm of ideas, if you'd like. They were not interested in current affairs. They were not interested in politics. They were above it, if you'd like. And, of course, France is invaded by uh, the Nazi uh, army and and South, like many other French uh, men, is uh, made a prisoner of war, brought to Germany. And he tried to escape uh, three times, third time lucky. And he arrives in Paris and, and Beauvoir is elated and, and to uh, see him again and she thinks it's going to be a very romantic reunion, and and it's not at all. Sartre can only uh, is is just uh, um, so obsessed with what they have to do and they must act, and how the, uh, politics and what's going on in the world is actually uh, a task uh, for philosophers, for everyone. It's a kind of uh, responsible um, um, collective responsibility, and you know, in a way, this will be the beginning of existentialism as we will know it a, a few years later. So, what happens is that Sartre and Beauvoir in the early 40s try to set up a sort of resistance cell 
And they go around the country to meet with their philosopher and, and writer's friends. The only problem is that they want to fight uh, the Nazis with words. And a lot of their friends just want to fight them, really, with weapons. And they will choose to uh, embrace the resistance uh, and the communist resistance and to do sabotage and to do things that are really risky. And so um, Beauvoir and, and Sartre uh, just uh, realize that they will have to uh, go back to their teaching and, and resist in the way they want. Um, that is to say, um, well, just with writing. And of course, at the end of the war, they took a lot of flack for not having resisted more. And you can't really consider them as great resistance. They weren't. Uh, Albert Camus, who is also in the book, took physical risks in, in a way that Sartre and, and Beauvoir never did. He had uh, forbidden you know, um, documents carrying uh, them uh, from one place to another, from one resistance hiding place to another. And he was also carrying weapons and things like this. But you know, despite the fact that there were not great resistance during the war, the war completely shaped and informed the intellectuals uh, they would become and we would uh, get to know um, after the war. They will, in '45, they uh, started a magazine called Les Temps Modernes after Charlie Chaplin's uh, film, Modern Times. And it was, it was monthly and it was one of the most remarkable literary and news um, and analysis, news analysis of the time. When you read it, Today, it feels and it reads as revolutionary as it was then. And it is often assumed that new journalism was born in the streets of New York in the 50s. Well, I can tell you it was born in 45 in the streets of Paris because that marriage between literature and reportage is exactly what uh, you find in Les Temps Modernes. And this is the magazine where you first hear about the problems in Vietnam, in Indochina, French Indochina, for instance, years before uh, the war broke out. And and a lot of uh, reportage about, uh, for instance, illegal abortion um, in uh, back streets in Paris, things like this, which were very, very uh, dimmed, very scandalous at the time. Indeed, and they published many of their associates and friends, uh, such as Albert Camus, also Merleau-Ponty, a French philosopher as well, and uh, they discovered a lot of new emerging writers. But they also, as you say in the book, were really keen to have conflict in their pages, um, particularly, uh, I can remember the, is it Arthur Kessler and Merleau-Ponty and uh, that back and forth around uh, his book, Darkness at Noon. Yes, completely. So they were um, really discoverers of talents. What they did with the, in their magazine is that they would uh, publish an extract uh, of, of a book that was about to get published or didn't have a publisher. But because they believed so much in the talent of those people, they wanted to, in a way, to uh, make them discover to a wider public. For instance, they published in translation Richard Wright, the great black American writer who was very well known in the States, but not uh, known at all in Europe. And they also uh, published Samuel Beckett, for instance, uh, years before Samuel Beckett became Samuel Beckett, if you'd like, uh, and known to a wider world. And they also published uh, Nathalie Sarraud, who is one of the big names of what we called Le Nouveau Roman, uh, which would sort of emerge on the literary scene in France in a few years later. And they loved, as you said, debating. And I think it's, uh, it's a rare quality today because what they really enjoyed was to debate with people that didn't agree with them. And in order sometimes to change their opinion, they surrounded themselves with intelligent people, but people who didn't think necessarily like them, people with a wide range of opinions. So it really made for uh, an agora, if you'd like, a place where you could have very vivid conversations, but still remain courteous and, and, and change the opinion of others or have your opinion changed. And it's so unlike today when we tend to talk to only people we agree with and we, like on social networks, we just block everyone who we feel is too offensive and so therefore we only talk to a very 
uh, that they, you know they are chapels of thoughts, but no connection between them. So they they really served a purpose of. Uh, a sort of crossroads between not only cultures because they were translated their magazine was not only read in the whole world but it was translated also and uh, so it was a global conversation there were so many interesting firsts that i recall one i was really particularly taken by was david rousset who wrote uh, a range of things, but one such thing was uh, an 800-page novel, Les Jours de Notre Mort, which was really about uh, the machinery of concentration camps during World War II. And as you say in the book, it was prior to that uh, very famous book by Primo Levi, who uh, wrote as a, a Holocaust survivor from Auschwitz. Yes, completely. And and David Rousset was this extraordinary man, and he managed the feat, uh, before Primo Levi did, of writing a very powerful account of his time in uh, concentration camps, because it was very dry, very analytical. I mean, dry, I mean, in a, in a good way. Yes. It was not emotional, and it was showing very clearly the sort of mechanism of the show of the uh, of the Holocaust and of the concentration camp machine, and it was recently uh, re-edited in France. And I would really highly recommend anyone reading it. It's been translated uh, in many languages, and. Uh, that was also one of the aim of the book is for for people to actually go back to all those people and all those texts that some of them are out of print but you can find very easily second hand uh, very cheap um, editions um, and again in in english but also in other languages and because some of them like Arthur Kessler that you mentioned earlier it was this lion of of world literature and uh, by uh, one of his most uh, famous book is darkness at noon and um, he has sort of fallen into uh, oblivion and uh, and it's a shame because he's uh, written uh, some remarkable books uh, like uh, one of my favorite is the scum of the earth um, because as an alien in france he was born uh, hungarian he was brought up uh, in germany and uh, went from hungarian to uh, german speaking and, and german rising and then he uh, came to france and at the beginning of the war he was interned because he he was an alien uh, citizen and then he fled to london and then he changed language again and uh, he became a writer in the english language a remarkable destiny and um, at the time uh, a very very well-known public figure as as well known as south Beauvoir and Camus. Yes, it is very surprising. And it's also interesting that in terms of his political leanings, people saw him as not as left-wing as some of the others who were either communist or non-communist, but seeking a third way and in the middle between um, the Charles de Gaulle movement and the communists. And uh, that certainly, I know you say, caused a lot of political conflict between some of the key intellectuals in his circles. And also that in his his career, there were many women who supported him and enabled his work to be in other languages. Yes, well, um, to, to talk first about the, the politics, Arthur Kessler, during those few years of sort of la- a laboratory of ideas, um, was very close friends with Camus and, and Sartre and Beauvoir. And they, they all tried very hard to find that third way, that something that would not... Um, you know, they didn't want to be fellow travellers of the Communist Party. They were quite against uh, communism, especially Kessler, of course, because he had known the absurdity of communism uh, earlier in his life. But also they didn't want to um, to be too much uh, enslaved with the American model. And so they tried to find this third way. And Jean-Paul Sartre tried in a very pra- practical way, because with his friend David Rousset, um, he uh, set up a political party in 47 and 48. He founded the uh, Rassemblement Démocratique uh, Révolutionnaire as if there was a revolutionary centre. It's still, you know, the same idea. I think we're, uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, in France today would be quite sympathetic to that idea. 
and and everybody was very interested. There were fifty thousand members at some t- at some point. There was an impetus uh, elections with representatives. But what of course happened is that different people in the in the party uh, had to uh, to part ways because some were pro gaullist That is to say let's say, a little on the right-wing side, and some were more pro-communist, and they just couldn't resolve their differences. And, you know, at the end of the book, Arthur Kessler chooses uh, what he calls Pax Americana, you know, the American way, because he thinks it's still more preferable than the Soviet Union. And and Beauvoir and Sartre uh, think that actually they can't stand Pax Americana. They also can't stand uh, Soviet Union, but they prefer in the end to side more on the left and therefore with the communist. So it's, um, and then of course the Cold War starts. Uh, that's just uh, after after the book. But what what is actually Perhaps that the only success is that uh, in the manifesto of Jean-Paul Sartre's political party that only lasted two years was this idea that the third was the third way was also about an independent Europe. And I end the book with Jean Monnet and the idea of the common market and of the future European Union. And it's probably how, you know, we had uh, a peace during uh, the last 70 years. And um, and I, if I go back to Albert Camus, because I didn't talk about him, he also, um, he remained friends with everyone, more or less, but he wanted yet another way, didn't he? He really hated the communists, but he really hated the gaullists as well. And he was a social democrat. Um, he he uh, was for sort of a, a so, social justice, but also... Uh, individualism and and liberalism in an economic way he would probably have been quite happy living in uh, in northern european countries but uh, he died uh, in the early uh, 1960s well that's a an interesting point you make and you begin the book actually talking about the people who are perhaps social democrats themselves and are quite disappointed with the progress that was made or lack of progress that was made by some of the people who should have, in their view, pushed social democracy further. And one of those is Anglo-American historian Tony Judd, who is in fact my favourite writer of all time. And I was really interested in the fact that you had referenced his work, particularly looking at the Paris intellectuals of this period, and the fact that his book he referred to as an essay on intellectual irresponsibility. What type of irresponsibility do you think Judd is referring to there in terms of the group of people that you're talking about? Yes, I was really struck by uh, Tony Judd's uh, book on the uh, on French intellectuals uh, in the 40s and the 50s, because quite typically he was in awe as a student and also because he lived in Paris he was in awe of all those people that uh, you find in in my book and he was terribly disappointed a bit like a sperm lover that they hadn't managed to to achieve more to to even prevent the cold war i mean uh, which is in a way strange to think that you should put so much hope in 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 people uh, as if some people could change the course of history but because they were so charismatic and so incredibly bright and coming up with new ideas all the time and so convincing that even Tony Judd and and many others thought they could have done something more um, personally I don't think they could have done much more because they tried so very hard. And, and then, of course, you know, a few individuals cannot change the course of, of history. But his book is really remarkable and and, and I would really hi- highly recommend anyone read it. And it's also very scathing against some, uh, you know, some French intellectuals who he believed were to too lenient towards the the communist party in the end and should have they should have kept in his eyes they should mm-hmm. have kept uh, fighting and fighting but but the violence and the and the flag that Sartre and Beauvoir took it, they were attacked by everyone precisely because they were so popular with the with the youth and the communists and also uh, the gaullists and the catholics 
were uh, find them very dangerous because existentialism uh, was very fashionable and the youth uh, was really uh, um, embracing existentialism which everybody thought could corrupt uh, the youth. Yes, well, it's hard to imagine now, although I still think that existentialism is a very radical philosophy in the context of today. And if you actually followed it and lived by it, you would be quite a different individual, I think. But you raised there some interesting points about the criticism of Beauvoir and Sartre is the fact that they wouldn't really take sides necessarily in a really strong or clear fashion, whereas people like Camus were often criticised for being, uh, quote, a moralist and having a strong position on certain political issues. And that is their philosophical approach coming through in the sense that you write, they didn't necessarily make moral judgments. Yes, you, you're completely right. It's very interesting with Camus because he's this moralist and moralistic figure as a writer and as an editorialist. But because let us not forget that just after the war, because he was a committed intellectual, he wanted to have an impact on French and European politics. He accepted to be the editor of Combat, which was a daily newspaper, but in his private life. He was not a very uh, moralistic uh, uh, and moralist uh, figure in the sense that he was completely incoherent, uh, having, uh, as as you know, a lot of affairs um, and and not being a very good husband, nor nor being a very good father. Was I must say, Sartre and Beauvoir were coherent, and that's actually something to admire, and and can be admired them for that because. There was a clear coherence in their political life and in their private life. As students, when they had met and fell in love with each other, they decided they wouldn't marry and they wouldn't have children, which was quite shocking. They came from very bourgeois, very bourgeois background. They wanted to completely break with bourgeoisie's traditions. And they decided not to have children, for instance, because their children was their work in a way, and they were workaholic. They were incredibly disciplined, and they worked eight. They wrought eight hours a day, so it means that they actually worked uh, longer hours, and um, they had a lot of uh, affairs with uh, uh, friends and students. But that's how they, you know they, they talked about contingent loves and essential love. The essential love was their relationship, but they allowed each other to experience and to have other contingent uh, love affairs and and sometimes with their students. Uh, they would always remain, almost always remain in good terms uh, when passion had consumed itself. Uh, so there was what we call a sort of growing Sartrean family. That's how we, we call it in, uh, in French, la famille Sartrienne which includes, obviously, the Beauvoir family. And they supported financially all uh, those people. Um, They paid for the rents, uh, they paid for everybody's foods, especially during the war. They didn't own anything. They didn't want to own. They just spent and spent a lot of the time for others, uh, not to have riches, not to to have good clothes or or, or, uh, to live in luxury, not at all. And so there, there was a coherence that many others, like Camus, who were more moralist, um, at least in the, on the public scene, uh, was not. Yes, there is a huge gap between his public views and his private life. And he certainly, as you write, felt very constrained by his domestic life and he felt that that was holding back his professional work and writing. I was looking through uh, an interview by a German uh, friend of Beauvoir and Sartre and they were talking about their domestic arrangement and the fact that they lived in hotels in mostly in separate rooms on the same floor or on different floors and they were very particular in not living in the same room so that they didn't have this domestic tension uh, in terms of who would do what and that 
they might accidentally fall into uh, some of the traditional societal and behavioural norms of men and women at the time. This is really something which we probably think of as not as radical, but at this time, which is the 1940s, it is really something quite significant. And you say in the book, quote, women had to be very strong in 1948 to be able to assert themselves and plainly to exist. And so it is really amazing that particularly Simone de Beauvoir, who many women looked up to, including, as you say, Juliette Greco and Brigitte Bardot, she really did blaze a path for other women uh, to look up to and admire, didn't she? No, she did completely. Uh, but she was also brought up like a, like a man by her father, who uh, had two daughters, but really all he wanted was boys. And uh, he could see that Simone was very gifted, and he pushed her. He pushed her, and um, and in a way that really made her. And when Jean-Paul Sartre suggests to her in uh, 46, 47, to uh, perhaps study what we call in French the woman condition, the feminine condition. She doesn't understand at, at first because she's asking him his advice on her next editorial project. Um, she's a bit bored. She's between books, and he says, "No, but you haven't exactly. Uh, your your life is different because you're you're a woman." At first, because she was brought up uh, like a son to her father, she says, "No, I don't understand. I don't feel at all different." And then, of course, she has an epiphany because she thinks, "Okay, well that." might be interesting as a little article. So she goes to uh, the National Library and she starts um, really digging up and, and looking, looking at ancient myths, for instance. And then the more she studies the, the subject, the more she thinks, oh my God, yes, uh, Sartre is onto something. Of course, there's difference. And uh, that little essay uh, or little article which uh, she thinks she's writing is going to become a 1,000-page um, and two volumes of, uh, called The Second Sex, published in '48, And, uh, you know, one, one uh, work that is still making an impact today. Um, I uh, read it again, and, uh, and it's, it feels so fresh and so uh, controversial because um, she, um, she's very straightforward. She's an extremely straightforward writer. And uh, in the second tome, that was a uh, second volume, uh, because it was published at the time in two, uh, in two volumes, people found it scandalous because she was talking about the physiology of, of the reproduction system uh, in women. And she talked about vagina and she talked about clitoris and she talked about all these things, but in, uh, um, in not in an emotional way at all. And she was very matter of fact and, and all the more powerful when you read it uh, to, still today. So uh, uh, Beauvoir was, yeah, a trailblazer and also, as you said, in the way uh, she lived. She was an example, really, for a lot of young women uh, um, like Françoise Sagan, also the uh, young uh, French novelist, because she was free. She was a free woman. and But why was she free? It's because she was financially independent. And that's something her father told her, saying, you must earn your living, otherwise you'll always be dependent on a man on her husband mm. and um, it is absolutely key and of course in the 40s that's quite revolutionary. Very yes and the fact that she could initially gain a very permanent and secure teaching position is because she was such an excellent student and uh, got well the first or second top marks I know there's a debate as to who should have been first or second between her and Sartre but it just goes to show just how important it is to have that stability and foundation to be able to work and live and be a writer and focus your attention on writing uh, and I know she eventually did become a full-time writer and make money from that which just goes to show how successful they both were and it's also really fascinating that you draw on the fact that Sartre was very very generous and uh, gave out a lot of money to students in need for various purposes so they're both very generous not only of spirit but uh, in terms of material wealth and means. Oh, completely. Um, I was really um, astounded to, to see this. They, they had no ambition in saving money, for instance. They thought it was a, just a bourgeois concept. Also, domesticity, as you said very rightly, they, they refused domesticity. And that's uh, much easier if, if you're uh, living in a 
in a hotel. And at the time, there was nothing luxurious about living in hotels. We're talking about very decrepit, cheap hotels on the left bank. Uh, there was a housing crisis in France at the time anyway. So it really made sense to live in, in hotels. And you didn't have a bathroom. It was You had to share it. Uh, it was in on the landing. And um, there was really uh, hardly any heat. It was not luxurious. But it meant they didn't have to worry about domesticity, or, you know, uh, also because they were single in a way. You know, they had to look after their own clothes and, uh, and do their their washing in the in the sink, and um, uh, and that's it. And uh, Sartre always had uh, he was paid in cash. He insisted in in being paid in cash, and um, so he had words of. Uh, of money and bank notes in his uh, in his pockets and uh, his students remember I met uh, many of them remember he would pay always for meals and and sometimes for abortions his male students would come to him and saying oh I've got a problem I really have to uh, find uh, and of course it's illegal at the time and very risky they could uh, they, they risk prison they, they had doctors friends uh, who would perform abortion in uh, uh, in a good healthy environment uh, still taking a lot of risks but uh, and he would pay for it of course he would write plays for uh, some of their protege and and former uh, girlfriends um, there were the uh, Sostakovich uh, sisters uh, who were always in the shadows of uh, Beauvoir and, and Sartre lovely former students who uh, thought they were actresses. I don't think they were very good actresses, but Sartre uh, each time complied and uh, whenever Olga or her sister wanted uh, to to be on the stage, uh, he would just uh, write a very, very good play and uh, have them perform some of the parts. You're raising there a lot of important points, particularly around how prolific and diverse their work was and the different forms that it took. It makes me think that perhaps it'd be useful to talk a a little bit about the situation in occupied Paris, because as you've said, it was extremely important for the story that follows and the rebirth, as you say, of Paris and the artificial and very abnormal, ambiguous environment that Parisians were living in when there were German soldiers that they were basically surrounded constantly by the enemy, whether they were in uniform or not. And the fact that there was not really necessarily a black and white, because not every German soldier necessarily was bad. And you provide some fascinating examples where particular uh, aristocrats and others who are sent to Paris to represent the Third Reich, and they in effect provide some form of cover for the Paris arts collections and also for the writing that was happening at the time. One particular character who is fabulous is Jacques Jajat, not just because he has a fantastic name, but also because he seems to be extremely prescient and quite devious in a good way in terms of what he did with the Louvre collection. I wonder if you could tell me a bit about that story because uh, I've found that it really highlighted that ambiguity that existed around uh, the people who were living in Paris uh, during the occupation. So let's start with Jacques Jojard. And I actually wanted to start the book with him because um, he's such a hero of mine. And, and I didn't know about him, really. It's only by searching, researching the uh, the topic. And he should have a statue in the streets of Paris. Yes. Jacques Jojard was the head of the Louvre Museum. He was, um, I think, just 40. And... He had had some experience safeguarding the entire Prado in Madrid, the the Prado collection during the Spanish Civil War. Um, And he had overseen the safeguarding and transport of the collection to Switzerland. So um, he was also, as you said, a very prescient man. And he knew as early as 38, he he knew France would be at war with uh, Nazi Germany and that probably France would be invaded. And so he didn't talk to anyone, and he planned for the complete evacuation of France's entire public art collection, and that includes Le Louvre, of course. And in the summer before the declaration of war, he closed the Louvre Museum for three days, officially for repair, and he um, asked the staff, 
the students from the Beaux-Arts and also employees of La Samaritaine, which is a big, people who've come to Paris might be familiar with that uh, Art Deco Grand Magasin, just near the Louvre Museum. Uh, and his plan was to put every single work of art in a wooden case. And there was, of course, there was a system of ordering those collection. And on very important work of art, you had a yellow dot on the wooden case. And on uh, world treasures, you had to have a red dot on the wooden case. And there was one case that had three red dots, and it was the Mona Lisa. Of course, he needed a lot of vehicles, not only cars, but ambulances, every vehicle he could lay, lay his hands on. So there were open trucks and some of the very, very, very big canvases like the Rubenses that uh, couldn't be rolled uh, around a silent Linda had just to be um, hidden underneath a blanket on an open truck. And um, every uh, different uh, members of the staff were given a vehicle to look after and off they went just a few days before the declaration of war to different chateaus, some of them you know, grand chateaus we all know, like Chambord, for instance, but also private-owned chateaus that you had discreetly requisitioned to uh, store the public art collection. And by the time France declared war on Germany, the entire public collection was hidden and safe. And uh, he just retreated to his office and just waiting for uh, the Nazis to uh, invade France, which they did eventually, a few months later, after what we call the Fronny War. Exactly. And it is an amazing picture to have in your mind when you describe what's happening and the amazing teamwork that's required. But what is also fascinating is his initial meeting with Count Franz Wolf Metternich, a 47-year-old aristocrat and, as you say, a scholar of Renaissance art and architecture. And he was appointed to go to France and protect art. But as we know, Nazi Germany had very certain preferences for art and they would call some art degenerate art and writing degenerate writing and was obviously very ideological. But when he arrived and met Jacques Jajar, you describe the response of Jacques and his evaluation of Metternich and uh, and his intentions and I found that description really fascinating that on learning from uh, Jacques that the Louvre was empty, he had almost looked relieved Yes, they were actually very similar men. I mean, Count Metternich was, of course, there as a Nazi officer, but he was an aristocrat, a Prussian aristocrat, and he was not a fan of Hitler. And he uh, actually took his mission of protecting art literally, that is, protecting art also from very greedy uh, Nazi friends of Hitler, like Goering, for instance. And he covered the back of Jacques Jardin for as long as he could, because they had one thing in common, those two great men, Jacques Jardin and Captain Martinique, is that they had only one duty, and it was to art. And so, of course, at some point, Berlin uh, discovered that Martinique was uh, slightly too much in awe and too much of a friend of Jacques Jardin, and he was summoned back to Berlin. That's one great example um, that you're talking about, Metternich. And we also saw in your story another particularly important cultural regulator or censor come from Germany, Sonderführer Gerhard Heller, who came to Paris and uh, was appointed to basically censor and oversee the literary production of France. And uh, he, as you say, found Hitler repulsive. He wasn't a Nazi party member. And uh, I'm really interested in his particular relationship with that extremely important publishing house, Gallimard, that was in France. Because as you said, there were many small publishing houses that closed at the time, but this other publishing house had quite a range of publications that they were producing, particularly in ideology. Well, Gerhard Heller, who arrived in Paris on his 31st birthday, 
was such a fascinating character because, of course, he was a Nazi officer, a very young officer. But like Metternich, he was not a fan of Hitler at all. But on the other hand, he was a German citizen. So um, he had been enrolled willingly. He didn't flee Germany, he could have done. So he arrives in Paris and he had studied different languages. He had studied in Italy as a young man, as a younger man, and he had studied in, in France. And it was a dream come true for him, except it happened in such dreadful circumstances. And Otto Abetz, the German ambassador in Paris, gave him you know, the best job of his life. That is to say to obviously the entire uh, literary production of France. Imagine, 31, and in love with French literature. But of course, he was the, the chief censor, and he also, in a way, had a power of life and death on French writers and French publishers. And at the time, uh, some French publishers decided to close, to close down, and not to have anything to do with mm. uh, German censorship. And it was probably the only moral uh, answer. But others like Gaston Gallimard, Gallimard was the biggest uh, French publishing house, decided to play it differently. They, and that's, uh, that's really a, a you know, masterful uh, lesson in ambiguity. They appointed a sort of in-house fascist. Drieux La Rochelle was a very, very talented French writer. He was also a fascist. And he was appointed by Gallimard just to be the sort of face and amicable face to the Nazi occupants. And through Drieux La Rochelle, Gallimard published a series of anti-Semitic, fascist, uh, Nazi-friendly literature. But at the same time, next to Drieux La Rochelle's uh, little office was the office of uh, Jean Paulin. And Jean Paulin ran a resistance cell from Gallimard. So he was the in-house in resistant. And both men knew perfectly well what the other was doing. But in a way, in a bit, a little way like Jojard and Metternich, they only had one duty, and, that, and it was to literature. And although Drieux La Roche was a fascist, he really admired Jean Paulin's taste for great literature, even from a resistance or communist writers. And that's how during the war, Gallimard was able to publish both fascist and communist writers and under the supervision and the amicable supervision of Gerhard Heller, who also loved literature. And he covered the back of Jean Paulin, who he really admired. And for instance, he was given, because he, I mean, he, he could say no, he, he was supplying the paper on which uh, the books were printed. And um, he was given the manuscript of The Outsider of L'Etranger by Albert Camus, and he read it over one night and, and called Gaston Gallimard in the morning and said, okay, it's too good not to be published. Um, I will cover your back because L'Etranger could be seen as, mm. you know, for, for Nazi readers, not exactly a Nazi-friendly uh, piece of literature. You could see a lot of uh, uh, sort of core, I mean, the subtext was quite insurrectional in a way in L'Etranger. And, uh, and Camus only learned after the war the parts that played this Nazi officer in, in his own success. So, you know, it's, it's a very murky affair. It is. And Gallimard was very important, as you say, in terms of the range of writers who were being published during occupied Paris. And it meant that there was a huge cultural engagement that continued for the entire decade. And uh, a range of those people, uh, you, you mentioned Camus, also uh, James Joyce, Simone de Beauvoir, Jean-Paul Sartre, Paul Morand and uh, Louis Aragon, a communist mm -hmm. resistant. Oh, yeah, completely. And Aragon, after the war, played a big part in the Communist Party, in the French Communist Party, actually, not for better, but rather for worse. But he was also an incredibly talented writer. So mm. he was to uh, communism what uh, the Rio La Rochelle was to fascism. Paul Morand is another very dodgy political character, but a great writer. And uh, so it was, you know, Paris during the, the war was a school of ambiguity. Exactly. 
one other example that you provide is uh, the fact that these characters uh, provided some form of support or at least collaboration in terms of resisting the attempts of the Gestapo to make arrests against resistance activity. Yes, completely. Jean Paulin uh, would often ask Gerhard Heller to intervene so that X or Y writer uh, wouldn't get arrested or would be freed from uh, some intern camps, which were usually the first stop towards um, concentration camps in Germany. Uh, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And Rieu La Rochelle also intervened a few times uh, with his Nazi friends to do the same, to uh, uh, protect or free uh, or help the case of writers, uh, resistance writers. It would be great to finish off our conversation by speaking a little bit about the revolutionary ideas that really did flourish in this liberation period. The most important, as really is shown in the book, is this idea of existentialism and the philosophy of existentialism, which was put forward by Jean-Paul Sartre in his lecture, Existentialism is a Humanism, and apparently caused women to faint. But it also meant, as you write, that there were many younger people who were called existentialists. Not only did they themselves adopt the term or the philosophy, but then others were deriding them for adopting this to what they would see as quite radical philosophy of living and being in the world, which was really around the fact that, uh, as Jean-Paul says in his lecture, existence precedes essence and so therefore one's essence is constantly being made by one's actions and uh, behaviours. Well, yes, it's still very radical today, existentialism in many ways, because basically it says it, it puts uh, men and women in front of uh, not only their contradictions, but also their actions. That is to say, if you act, you're, and if you don't act, it's the same. You're making a conscious decision not to act. And of course, it was a reference to anyone who were passive during the war, I'm not talking about the resistance or the collaborator with uh, the Nazi occupants, they were acting. But it meant that existentialism was putting a whole majority of the French people who didn't do anything during the war in front also of their responsibility. They chose to remain passive. And this is something they have to live with. And, you know, it's a very, um, very liberating, in a way, a philosophy. It means that you're responsible for everything you do or everything you don't do, everything you say or you choose not to say. Of course, it's difficult because uh, freedom is, is limitless, in a way, and, and it means that everything you do has political consequences. But also, it makes you at the center of action. It means that uh, you are not a victim of um, what's going on in, in the world or of forces that you have no, uh, um, no say on or, or no power on. Uh, no, you are uh, fully active, fully conscious and, and fully free to uh, act the way you do. You only have to bear the consequences. That's a great point. And you highlight the fact that given uh, there were some constraints on people in occupied Paris, the existentialist argument would be you are still mentally free, even if you are, for example, imprisoned as Jean-Paul Sartre was, you still have freedom within the constraints you find yourself in and you still have choices to make. Yes, absolutely. And that was actually a very... A very attractive new philosophy and and uh, lesson in life for for the youth who had been too young during the war to uh, because they were children to be fully engaged obviously but they had seen their parents grappling uh, with those difficulties and they could now perhaps grow and and um, recover from from the war and and becoming adults in the in the post war and perhaps not repeat the mistakes that their parents did um so it was it was very emancipating if you like a freeing uh, philosophy and um but there are so many people we didn't talk about uh, perhaps all the americans who some of them had fought during the war and uh, henry chose uh, paris to leave their young adult lives as either students or uh, aspiring writers. I think we should talk uh, about Saul Bellow and Norman Mailer 
and Art Buckwald and also some uh, incredibly uh, successful journalists like Theodore H. Y. Uh, but of course, there are too many people who can't talk for us. But uh, <laughs> it's important also to say that there's a lot of jazz yes. uh, in in the book um, and some remarkable women like Janet Flanner, who was the correspondent of The New Yorker in Paris, uh, a friend of Hemingway. Uh, she was in her 50s because she had been a correspondent in Paris since the 1920s. And so it's, you know, there are 32 main characters in the book and uh, some uh, uh, not so known people, but they all make a sort of a community uh, of Parisians being of different nationalities. There's also Giacometti and Picasso and Cocteau uh, having cameos and um, coming and going. And as you said, Juliette Greco. Yes, exactly. So many musicians and artists as well, not just writers, uh, were part of this story and uh, they are all really fascinating. And you also follow some of the main characters over to America and highlight their response to American culture and American jazz. Uh, and certainly Simone de Beauvoir had a very poetic experience uh, when she experienced jazz in New Orleans. And obviously, even in uh, Paris, of course, there were so many underground jazz clubs that were really flourishing at the time that were so important to the culture there. Oh, completely, and and uh, when Miles Davis came for the first time with Dizzy Gillespie in Paris uh, to perform, uh, it was the best time of his life. Probably because a he didn't feel black in Paris, having you know not feeling the burden of uh, racial segregation, and and also he was considered as an artist. Uh, his friend Boris Vian, Boris Vian, the French writer who was also a trumpetist and a jazz impresario, took him to meet Pablo. Picasso and Jean Cocteau and many others and those jazz musicians who were really not considered at all in the, back at home in the US uh, were just considered as, as big as uh, Picasso in, in Paris. That really changed their lives. Uh, and some of them decided to stay. And I'm talking uh, about Richard Wright, uh, the black American writer, but also James Baldwin, who arrives at the end of the book and settling in Paris and, and Paris and France will save him in many ways. He says, if I remain in the, in the US, I will, uh, I will die. I know I'm going to die, either shot uh, dead by the police or, or I will hang myself. You know, Paris at the time is, uh, is a refuge and, uh, uh, and a bastion of radicality. Yes, and a liberator. Uh, it seems that it does free people to express their not only their uh, creativity but also their sexuality and their passion and love. And your subtitle is Art, Passion and Rebirth. And certainly what is really strong in this story to me is the fact that although there is quite a lot of sex involved and differing relationships it's not a means of convenience only there seems to be so much passion and love and intellectual engagement um, and vigor going on in these different relationships that it's not superfluous and it should take center stage in this story well, completely. It's um, it's part of who they are, and it comes with who they are, and uh, it's because they are all passionate people, and, and it's in a time of heightened uh, emotion and heightened historical significance. So everything takes a very a vivid colour. Yes, yes, and there was, um, I think, so many people who you looked back on, you looked at their diaries and their letters, and some of them are particularly moving or affecting, such as the correspondence between Dominique Ori and Edith Thomas and their very passionate relationship, which was not exclusive. But I didn't realise it was Dominique Ori who was the author of the story of O, which is such a huge uh, erotic novel from France and really um, has taken its place in history alongside other people like Anne Nin. No, it's a lovely uh, love story between Edith Thomas, who was a resistant. She was also a, um, an archivist and a writer. And she had a rather lonely existence until she met Dominique Ory, who was this very um, discreet, but also very beautiful woman uh, writer, the mistress of Jean Paulin from Gallimard. 
but she was also bisexual and she fell in love with the editor man. They had this uh, uh, lesbian romance which completely transcended and transfigured editor man. And it's a it's a beautiful story within the story, as you know. Mm-hmm. There are plenty of different stories. And and Edith Thomas was um, a feminist and and writing a lot about women figures in French history at the time. But she didn't. She liked the talent of Simone de Beauvoir to, to compete with Beauvoir. But she was also very endearing and very interesting character. Mm. Well, as you say, there are so many characters in this story, so there's no way that we could possibly touch on everyone. But you make a great point, and I think it's an important point to finish on, which is that we should be revisiting some of these people who we don't know and some that we do know and the important work that they were doing then because, as you say, it is still very radical today and extremely relevant uh, with the current situation we find ourselves in. And also very fresh. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for joining me, Agnes. Uh, It's been fantastic to speak with you and to be inspired by some of the revolutionaries who really flourished in this decade that we're talking about, the 1940s in the left bank of Paris. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.